Lord, thank you for this time together. We are a blessed people. We are super blessed, Lord, to have this house, this place to come and to worship you. Thank you that you're not confined to here, obviously, Lord, but we, we, we worship you here and we believe that you are amongst your bride and your church. Lord, we joyously give to you, Lord, as Father, you are a great provider. We joyously give back to you. We offer this up to you, Lord, asking you, Use it for your glory. Give us as a church wisdom with these funds. Creative insight, Lord, and where they're to go. We rejoice, God, in you and in this time. We rejoice and thank you for all the churches here in Carp and Coastlands, Lord. We thank you. For them. Thank you that we are one with them. We ask that you would come as the saints gather all over, that you would come and be in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our high school winter camp is happening next weekend. High schoolers? Yeah. <laughs> They're over there. We love you guys. So high school winter camp is happening next weekend. The theme is with him. There's all the info. They're going to be going up to the mountains to, uh, man, have wonderful times in the word, lots of fun, good food, workshops, learning um, disciplines and ways of how to be with Christ, how to sit with him and, and man, stuff that's going to impact their lives forever. We're so excited for you, all you guys going up there. And uh, also, our junior high camp is coming up at the beginning of February. Uh, their theme is Alive. Uh, yeah, j Hars. Love you guys, too. <laughs> Amen. And uh, their theme is Alive and what it means. You're going to be learning about what it means to be alive in Christ. And uh, parents and uh, youth, you can sign up after the gathering right outside of our youth room. Get all the information you need to know. This is the last day to sign up for the high school camp next weekend. So please sign up. And uh, we're going to be having at our weekly prayer meeting, uh, where we meet every Tuesday and pray, specifically focused on the, on the high school camp. We're going to be praying this Tuesday morning at 7 right here for the high school camp, for the Lord to meet you guys in a radical way, for, their, for you to have a lot of fun and also to be built up in the ways of the Lord and the scriptures. So please come out uh, Tuesday morning and, and pray with us for our high schoolers. And also during the week, we want to charge you, church, to, to, to be praying for them. We want to pray that they're on our hearts and our minds and in our prayers. Pray for them all week in your lunch break or at home and and especially during the weekend, we'll be lifting up our high schoolers. So we've got to be praying for them. And it's a joy and an honor to do so as they get away to seek the Lord. Uh, ladies, women, there is a Bible study coming up in a couple weeks for you guys. It is the Anne Graham Lotz Bible study called Pursuing More of Jesus. This is a seven-week inductive women's Bible study that highlights... Uh, Jesus' teachings uh, to the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. Uh, his teaching, his study, uh, be encouraged to learn what the scripture says and, and, and what it means. And you'll be challenged uh, daily to be saturated in the word of God and to be changed by it. There are two times, two days and times uh, this study is happening, Tuesday Tuesdays and Thursdays, Tuesday evening at 7 and Thursday morning at 9. And the Thursday morning class has childcare available. So make note of that. More info for all you gals after our gathering. And it's going to be a wonderful study in the Word of God together. Men, there's a study coming up for you as well. Oh, nope. Okay. <laughs> Men, there's a study coming up for you as well. And uh, there you go. 
Listen, this is a study coming up called Disciplines of a Godly Man. You're going to be going through a book by R. Kent Hughes called Disciplines of a Godly Man. And in this study, men, it's going to be a time of teaching, of mentorship, of prayer, a time of training ourselves to be more godly. This is going to be starting on January 26th. It'll be on Monday nights. And uh, this is a wonderful book. I've read this book, and it's just like scripture and simple practical ways to to be more disciplined, to live more godly lives as men in this community, in this world. And and I don't know about you, but I need it. I I need it. And so we hope to see a lot of you men there at this study. More info to come about it, and there'll be a table to sign up and be a part of that. We are finished with announcements. Be ready to get into the Word of God soon. So let's welcome Pastor Britt. Good morning, church. All right, good to see you guys. Everybody well-ish? Anybody got that flu that's going around, or did you get it? Hey, I got it this week. It is a nasty dog. It's a gnarly flu. I was down all week long. Um, And I'm the typical man who, like, when I get sick, I think it's the end of the world, I'm going to die, and everybody should wait on me. My wife doesn't play into it at all. When I get sick, she puts me in another room, and that's it. And then I get to see her in like four days. But uh, man, that was a nasty flu. I was laid out. So all of that is my disclaimer before the sermon. If the sermon doesn't go well, it's because I was sick all week. It's always nice to have a disclaimer, right? You never know when you're going to bomb on a sermon. So it's nice to say, hey, I was sick. And that way, if it wasn't that good, you'd be like, ah, he was sick. No big deal. Anyway, uh, last week we had our missionaries from South Africa, Donnie and Natalie Feller here. And they came up and shared for a little bit. We prayed for them. And uh, I mentioned to you at that time that one of the most important things that we do as a Christian, one of the most important things that we do as a church is global missions, right? Being involved in the sending and going to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ all over the world and most importantly where it has not been heard before. So we give ourselves to that as a church. It's a huge part of what we do. And uh, this week we have a small team that will be going to Uganda And uh, I want to bring a couple of the members from the team up here and introduce them and let them talk for a bit. You can give them a little love if you want. This is Evan Sponseller, and this is Amber Smith. They are both on staff here at the church. Uh, Evan oversees our music ministry, worship ministry at all three campuses. So anything that has to do with musical corporate worship... He has his hands on, he's responsible for that, and he's doing a wonderful job with that at all three campuses. His wife, Kristen, they together started a a home for um, at-risk and orphan kids in Uganda, and they're going to be going ministering at that. I'll let him tell you about that, but that's who he is. His wife will be going with him. And then this is Amber Smith, and she's been on staff at the church for as long as I can remember, which is a good thing, and she does a lot of stuff. She oversees our whole global missions effort Uh, which is huge, and she should be applauded for that on cue right now. And has spent a lot of time around the world engaged in missions and going different places and being involved in what God is doing amongst the nation. She also, on staff, we call her the Queen Dean because she is the director of our internship program, our sort of school ministry thing. Uh, She's the director for that and does an incredible job. We've seen dozens and dozens of people raised up and trained for ministry under her leadership, leadership, excuse me. So she is a huge influence and uh, potent and effective leader in our church as well. She's married to Matt Smith, who is one of our elders. He's at the Santa Barbara campus, and um, we're very thankful for both of them. And now they're going to tell you what they're going to do. Thanks, Britt. So um, my wife and in-laws and I started this children's home about two years ago. And uh, there's 19 kids there. Um, We leave tomorrow to go for two weeks. And there's different reasons why we go on trips. But on this one, um, the Lord just recently blessed us with seven acres over there. Um, So we'd like to build a home on it, a more permanent place um, where we can raise crops and have cattle and have have it be somewhat self-sustaining. And um, so it's a huge blessing to have Amber and Matt go because they've been all over the world and they've done this a lot. So um, it'll be a blessing to have their vision and ideas for 
what we can do with the land, what the Lord wants to do with it. Um, and then also, anytime we go on a trip like this, we spend a lot of time with the kids. Um, there's only 19. I mean, there's millions in Uganda who are at risk, but we just have 19. We feel called to keep it small um, so that we can focus on those ones until the Lord raises up more leaders. So um, I think that's it, and Amber is going to share also. This is my first time to Uganda, um, both for myself and for Matt, my husband. And um, some of you may be familiar with um, Uganda as a country. Um, they're really well known for uh, their average age of their population is just about 15 right now. Um, and so historically, especially really within the past couple decades, um, globally, Uganda has been really unique in that it has one of the lowest average or median ages of its population. And within that, a country with the average age of 15, um, many of those youth and children are orphaned um, or at risk or are vulnerable in some way. And so um, in some ways, that number represents a lot of uh, tragedy and there's a lot of different um, you know, dynamics there. Um, but what we see is that globally, God is also mobilizing the church, the church in Uganda, as well as uh, the church around the world, to be a part of this work of restoration that God wants to do among children in that country. And so um, I'm excited to be able to be a part of this. Um, God loves children. He loves um, children that are vulnerable and um, at risk. And he wants to reveal his father's heart to them. And we know restoration of children is a long-term process. So um, as much as you guys partner with us in praying for uh, this trip for the next two weeks, we really want you to be praying long-term. So if you're not already familiar with uh, the work that Evan and Kristen are a part of, the work of Kaya, um, then I really encourage you to seek them out and to learn more. Um, and just really ask yourself how you can be more available to pray and partner with what God wants to do in this next generation in Uganda. So uh, thank you for praying for us. Uh, we really do need prayer. Uh, so we appreciate your prayers of uh, faith um, over us. Um, yeah, and you're our church, and we love you guys. We're going to come down front, right? Oh, wait. Check one, two. They're going to come down front right now, and we'll lay hands on them and pray for them. So if you're into that sort of thing, come on up and lay hands on them. We'll see who's not into that sort of thing here. <laughs> if you don't like prayer, just stay in your seat. It's cool. <laughs> just kidding. Totally joking. Youth group, are you guys staying in here today? Oh, you're leaving. Okay. Oh, awesome. Just checking. You guys don't want to pray? Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just pray for our youth since they don't want to pray. That you just, just kidding. <laughs> Lord, thank you for what you're doing in Uganda. And thank you for Evan and Kristen and their family that started Kaya Children's Home there and are ministering to all these kids. Thank you for Matt and Amber Smith who are going and others who are sowing into this work. And we want to sow into it right now through prayer. So we're asking that you would bless Kaya Home for Children, Lord. We ask that you would bless it abundantly, that it would be able to open its doors, that every kid that you would bring its way, and that every kid would be ministered to with the love of Jesus Christ, with the healing effect of your love, Lord. We pray that they come face-to-face -face with who you are, that you do a radical work in their lives. Uh, we pray for Janet, the house mother there, that you bless her and keep her and strengthen her, anoint her to care for those kids. We ask that you'd raise up more people to care for these kids. We ask for an abundant supply of resources for the work of Kaya Children's Home and that you'd use it mightily. Thank you, God, that you're deeply concerned about the plight of these kids in Uganda. And because you're concerned, we're concerned. We care. And so we're asking that you would mobilize your church and move your church. And these who are going, we pray that you anoint them powerfully. And they minister in the power of the Holy Spirit with the strength and the gifts you supply. And that it would be effective for your glory, Jesus, and for the good of those kids. Show us what to do with that land that you've given us, Lord. Show us how to use it in the way that you will be most glorified and kids will be most best cared for. So we thank you for these that are going. We pray that you protect them and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good job, guys.
Well, it's the beginning of the year. We've been talking about for several weeks now how we all need to have a plan to read the Bible in 2015. If you're a Christian, part of your life is reading Holy Scripture. It's part of what we do as Christians. It's part of what we need to do as Christians. So hopefully you have a plan and we want to help you be effective in your Bible reading. So today at the um, book table, we have a whole bunch of new resources to help you understand Scripture books on how to interpret the Bible, books on the background of the Bible, commentaries on every verse in the Bible, guides through one-year Bible reading, uh, all sorts of different stuff is available for you over there. And if you talk to the people at the book table, they'll help you pick the right one. But, you know, when you read the Bible, you're not going to understand everything. It's kind of a gnarly book. There's a lot of stuff that you just don't get. I'm reminded of Mark Twain's statement. He said, Uh, It's not what I don't understand about the Bible that troubles me. It's what I do understand that troubles me. And those things don't trouble us as Christians, but we do realize there's going to be much as we're reading the Bible this year that we just won't get. And that's okay. It takes some time, right? I've been uh, reading the Bible and teaching it every week for 17 years, and there's so much that I still don't understand. But we want to be learners. We want to be students. We don't want to just say, well, I don't get it and move on. We want to be given and use the tools to begin to learn, to understand, interpret, and rightly apply scripture. So we have a bunch of those books available for you at the table today. Those are always made available to you at our cost, and if you cannot afford them, then they are free to you. We're happy to give you those. But let's all be students of God's holy word this year and give ourselves to it. That's part of what we do as Christians. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be a learner who is always in the process of learning. One of the main ways that we learn is by reading and studying scripture. So let's do that this year. Amen? Amen. Um, Also now, today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 5. Next week we get into chapter 6. And then we're getting down to like some of the gnarly stuff, right? You you know the book of Revelation. It's like, what does it mean? And who knows? And everybody disagrees. And oh my gosh, and who could possibly understand that? And we're just getting to that stuff next week. So far it's been pretty clear-cut. Most people agree on the interpretation of the first five chapters or so. It's not real complicated. The next six through 17, those chapters are going to get pretty hairy. So I want to remind you guys of a teaching we did our second week of the um, book of Revelation back in September called How to Interpret the Book of Revelation. How do we interpret the book of Revelation? I went back and refreshed myself with that stuff this week. So you might want to hop on the website this week. Watch or listen to that sermon again. It will help you as we begin to move into the more meaty, difficult, controversial chapters to come over the next several weeks, okay? It's the second teaching in this series on the book of Revelation. How do we interpret the book of Revelation? Maybe you don't have the internet or you don't have time to go listen to a sermon. I printed my sermon notes for that teaching from you, and they're up here on a stack to the left of my pulpit for you right there. And that's what I did this week. I just went back and reread my sermon notes and refreshed myself on how the book of Revelation uses symbols and metaphor and what it means to have a literal interpretation, but rightly interpret symbols and all that stuff. What is idealism and historism and predicism and futurism and all those things that are getting really important as we move into the coming stuff. There's my notes. You can study it for yourself. Cool? Okay. Revelation chapter 5, let's get to it. Open up your Bibles. Revelation chapter 5 this week, we are going to pick up the pace. It's taken us a few months just to get to chapter 5. We're going to start covering a chapter a week, Lord willing. We'll see. I know it's ambitious. We'll see how it goes. Um, Our Ventura campus is joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them. Okay. Revelation chapter 5, the title of the sermon is The Lion and the Lamb. This is the chapter in scripture where Jesus is revealed as the lion and the lamb. And he is the central theme, the main point of the chapter, as he is of the whole book of Revelation, as he is the whole book of the Bible. is about Jesus. He's the main point and the central theme. And we'll get that today in Revelation chapter 5. We'll read through the whole chapter right now. It's rather brief, 14 verses. And then we'll get to our study. Remember last week, John was invited up to heaven in chapter four, and he's in heaven, having this vision of heaven, getting this heavenly perspective. And now that vision, that experience of heaven continues uninterrupted into chapter five. Even though there's a chapter break in our Bible, there was not one in the vision. 
So he continues and says in Revelation 5.1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book or a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created being, Thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped this is God's wonderful word let's pray Lord, thank you for this text before us this morning and the glorious perspective it gives us of heaven and your sovereignty there and your your glory and your dominion, your power and your authority there. That you're ruling and reigning and though the nations rage and the world feels out of control, you're secure, you're on the throne, you're in control, ruling and reigning. Thank you for that reminder today and thank you, Jesus, you are there in the middle as the great conquering lion and the lamb who was slain for our sins. Thank you for this glorious truth. The way that it encourages us, the way that it challenges and shapes us, the way that it gives us hope and the way that it propels us to live lives on mission that the whole world might know of this glorious king. So we ask that you give us ears to hear your word now. Give us understanding. Help us to understand it. Please, Lord, help me. So I feel a bit sick and a little um, sort of discombobulated. Just ask that you would help me now to teach and preach in a way that brings glory to your name and is helpful for my dear brothers and sisters here whom I love. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we said last week, John was invited up into heaven to get a heavenly perspective. And God invited him into heaven because he was going to show him the things that were going to happen next. He was going to show him the future and the future fate of earth and the end of all things, if you will, and the new beginning of all things as new creation comes and God renews the heavens and the earth. And he was also going to show him the future judgment of the earth. And God wanted, and God wants us, he wanted John and he wants us to get this from the perspective of the throne. Because down here at ground level, excuse me, in the muck and the mire, in the weeds, life can be daunting and life can be messy. But from the perspective of the throne and the glory of heaven, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, all of creation snapped to attention at his glory, things are set right. Things are made more clear. And John needed this perspective because his life was hard 
and his time was hard. And we need this perspective because our lives can be challenging and our time is challenging. And you'll remember that last week as John entered into heaven, that the main thing there was the throne and the one seated upon the throne. And this told John that God is in control, that he has dominion, that he's sovereign and he's powerful. And though things seem out of control, they're not. God is in control. And now as that vision continues, John notices something that he hadn't seen before. That in the right hand of God, there's a scroll. This is verse one of chapter five. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne, a book, a scroll written on the inside in the back, sealed up with seven seals. There's this book and it seems that it's a robust book. It's a, it's a scroll. The, the form of it doesn't matter, but, but it seems that it's rather verbose. It's written on the inside and on the outside. It seems that it's comprehensive and that it has a lot to say. It seems that it's important because it's been sealed. Not once, not twice, not thrice, but seven times. When something is important, you seal it. When something's really important, you seal it seven times. And the scroll again, to highlight its import, is in the right hand of the Father, in the right hand of God. When we speak about that, we're speaking about security and power and authority, something in its right place. And whatever this scroll is, it's just that close to God. And it's that comprehensive and it's that important. And this grabs John's attention, even though the throne is glowing and the angels are singing and the the representatives of the church, the 24 elders are falling down and throwing their crowns and all this stuff going on, John notices the scroll. And so we're all wondering, well, what is this scroll? What scroll is so comprehensive? It's written on the front and the back and so important that it's sealed seven times and that it's in the hand of God. What is this? Sometimes when we have questions about the Bible, it helps to cheat and read the next chapter. So if we look forward in chapter six, we see what it is. We see it begin to be opened at the beginning of chapter six, verse one, and I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and then we see its contents explained clearly as we look at the end of chapter six, verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? This scroll is nothing other than God's judgment come to earth. This is God's righteous justice being inaugurated, about to be handed out, dealt out upon the earth. This is the wrath of God come down on an unrepentant world, unrepentant people those who are opposed to God. This is God's righteous wrath and justice come to earth. And listen to me. It is good news that God is a God of wrath because there are some things in this world and there are things in history that deserve wrath. It is good news that God is a God of judgment because there are realities in this world and times and places and spaces in history that need to be judged. It is good news that God is bringing justice to this world because there have been and there are great injustices in this world. It is good news that wickedness will be answered, that evil will be faced, that everything that is wrong will be confronted with everything that is right. The wrath of God. It is good news that God has a wrath that there is judgment. But it is also horrific. And the judgment, God's judgment of sin, his confrontation of wickedness, his face off with evil, it won't be pretty. Let's not try to fool anybody. It's not, it's not going to be pretty. God's judgment on earth It's not going to be pretty. But it is good 
And it is good news. And lest we forget, lest we get mired down in the horror of it all, lest we forget, it does end well. If we were to cheat again, and I'll just cheat for you and go to the back of the book, don't forget Revelation 21.1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Don't forget Revelation 22. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, there was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night. And they shall not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign forever and ever. Don't forget this moment. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he shall dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death or any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away and he who sits upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. It ends well. God's righteousness, his justice, his truth, his kingdom coming is bringing good things. He's going to make all things new. The curse of sin will be done away with. The effects of sin will be done away with. Everything that has gone horribly wrong will be set right. It does end well. And it is good news that God will judge the earth. But it's also tough. God's wrath on an unrepentant world will be tough. Surely we must know that the world and humanity's destiny has judgment as part of it. We know this from Scripture, but can you even try to imagine if that weren't the case? Can you imagine if the reality of humanity and history in the world was that wickedness would always go unmet? That evil would always remain unanswered? that chaos and what has gone wrong would always propagate and perpetuate, that it would never be put in check, that everything that has gone so awry that we bury our children would never be undone and set right? We don't dare imagine a world like that. And thankfully, that's not the reality of it. There is a day of reckoning. There is a judgment. And judgment to be effective for this world and its woes has to come to this world. It's like our salvation. We repent of our sins and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us upon the cross and we are saved. And that has a heavenly and future reality, but it also has a present reality, right? That that salvation affects us now and that salvation invades our time-space continuum so that it means something for now. We don't need to just be saved for eternity. We need salvation now. We need new natures now. We need the power of sin broken in our lives now. We need the penalty and the weight of guilt and sin removed from our backs now. See, salvation has a future reality and a heavenly reality, but it has a present reality too. So is judgment. Because the effects of sin have gone wrong in this world, God's judgment will come to this world. And this is good news. And it ends incredibly well. But this is difficult. And what the absence of present judgment is, what this seeming missing of God's justice is now, is actually his mercy and his patience. We sometimes wish that God would deal out immediate retribution, but we don't actually because that would make things hard for us. And sometimes the absence of God's immediate intervention in the woes and the ills of this world are mistaken for God's laissez-faire of this world. He's just letting it happen. And that's just not what Scripture says. Scripture actually says in 2 Peter that God is patient not wishing for any to perish. And so he delays 
the day of his wrath. That as he overlooks some of the wickedness and the sin in the world, what he's hoping to do is draw people to him through his kindness, Romans chapter 2 says. That because there's not cataclysmic judgment in the world right now doesn't mean that God is absent or doesn't care or is unable to deal with evil. It means that God is patient and merciful and waiting for more to get saved. But in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, the day of mercy has ended. Patience has come to a close. The day of justice has come. The day of reckoning begins to unfold. There is there in the hand of the Father a scroll. It's comprehensive. It's important. And it's sealed seven times. And it is God's plan to inaugurate his righteous reign, which must include his confrontation of evil, God's judgment. So then in verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So now an angel steps on the scene. John's seen this. The scroll is there. He didn't, he didn't miss it. It's, it's important. It's, it's comprehensive. Well, what can it be? I think he has a sense of what it is. And this angel steps forward and says, who is worthy to open it? In other words, who is worthy to bring God's justice to earth? Who's worthy to enact God's judgment? Who's worthy to bring his righteousness? Who's worthy to confront evil and undo the ills and the the woes of the world? Who can possibly do this? And it says that nobody was found in heaven, nobody was found on earth or under the earth. That's this fancy Bible way of saying no one in all the universe stepped forward and John began to weep. There he is in heaven beholding the glory of God, hearing this angel looking for someone who can take the throne. Nobody steps forward and John is weeping. And this is not like little sniveling. This word in the Greek means like chest convulsing, uncontrollable weeping, like deep bereavement. It's the same word that's used to speak of Jesus as he stood over Jerusalem and wept over them because they didn't recognize his coming. It's the same word used to describe Peter's grief after he denied Jesus three times. This is deep and abiding grief because I think John is wondering for a moment if all of humanity's worst fear is true. Is it possible that everything that's gone wrong isn't going to be set right? John is wondering. Is wickedness going to go unchecked? Is evil not going to be answered? Nobody stepped forward. The angel with the loud voice is calling. Who's going to release the judgment of God, the wrath of God on the world? Nobody steps forward. Are the mass murderers, is the genocide of history going to go unanswered? Are the traffickers of today, are the atrocities of now going to go unmet with righteousness? And John is lost in the grief of the possibility of a world and a history where evil is unchecked. And then, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Finally, Jesus comes on the scene. I mean, can't you get how John was feeling there? Isn't that so much of our life and experience? Doesn't it sometimes seem as though righteousness is absent and justice isn't present and We wonder why we're burying our kids and we wonder why our family's dying and we wonder why they're being beheaded and we wonder why they're being trafficked and we wonder why they're being aborted and we wonder why all this present darkness. 
And we are wondering what John was wondering, where is Jesus? And I'll be honest, sometimes it seems like he's too late. But he's not. That's why we're taken up into this chapter. We need to hear hear the elders say, stop weeping and just look for a second at the lion. Just look at Jesus. Because John, what you're weeping about is not reality. Reality is that there is one who's worthy to bring God's justice to this world and only one and his name is Jesus. And John, though you've got much heartache and much pain and anguish over the woes of the world, there is one who has the power and the authority to set it right and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Old Testament language talking about the promised Messiah that would come through the line of the tribe of Judah. And he's a root of David. That's Old Testament language meaning that he's a king who would sit upon the Davidic throne. There would be an everlasting throne with an everlasting dominion and that he would rule and reign in righteousness forever. John, I know that sometimes it seems as though all is lost, but stop weeping and just look at Jesus. He's a lion. And he's a lion who has overcome. And so he is worthy to open the scroll. And so we wonder, well, what, what, what makes him worthy? In what way has he overcome? In what way has Jesus overcome? And Jesus has overcome in many ways. But the central way that denotes his worthiness here, the way that allows him to be the one who is worthy to bring justice to the world is the same in which he brought mercy of the world. For he's not only the lion with strength and dominion and power and growl and bite. He's also, the next verse says, the lamb who was slain. Verse 6. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. What makes Jesus, the lion, worthy to bring God's justice to the world is that he is also the lamb who was slain. Remember when John the Baptist was baptizing people of the Jordan River and all of Israel, all of Jerusalem was coming out to him to be baptized for the repentance of sins. And one day as he's baptizing there, Jesus came walking through the crowd. And John looked at him. Do you remember what he said? Do you remember what he said? Put it on the screen in case you forgot so you don't get it wrong. Read it together. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John said about Jesus that day on the banks of the Jordan River. Behold, the Lamb of God. And every Jew who was present there knew what that meant. They knew what lambs were for. They knew that lambs were sometimes for food and sometimes for commerce and sometimes for pets. But they knew that primarily in Israel's religious economy, lambs were for for sacrifice. And that lambs were the innocent ones whose blood was spilt for them, the guilty ones. And every one of them had the experience of having sinned. And so having to procure a lamb and go to the temple and slit its throat to spill its blood that it might provide a covering for their sins. The innocent dying for the guilty. Wait a minute, this is a lamb of God, this Jesus one? Oh, every Jew knew what that meant because they all knew what Passover was. That when God said he was going to judge Egypt for their sins, that he told Israel, take a lamb, slaughter it, put its blood on the doorpost above your house, and when I see you under the blood, my wrath will pass over you. They knew that they were only exempt from God's wrath when they were under the blood of the lamb. They knew that there was only forgiveness for their sins when the blood of the lamb had been spilt in their stead, the innocent bleeding for the guilty. And so they rejoiced when John said, behold, the lamb of God. It's not merely a Passover lamb. It's not any old temple lamb. 
This is the lamb of God's provision. This is the one that was prefigured when Abraham was about to sacrifice his son and God said, stop. And he looked and there was a lamb provided for him stuck in the thicket. This is the one that was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet when he said, and he was pierced for our transgressions and the forgiveness of our sins. John looked at Jesus and said, behold, the lamb of God. God's provision for our sins who takes away the sins of the world. What a glorious phrase that was in their Jewish years because they knew that all the lambs, and there had been millions by them, by then that they had to sacrifice in the temple only provided a temporary covering for their sins. They would bring the lamb, the innocent dying for the guilty, and they would go away and they'd sin and be guilty again. And they'd have to go and bring another lamb and they'd sin again and another lamb. And it was a never ending cycle of the innocent dying for the guilty. Behold the lamb of God, God's own provision, who takes away the sins of the world, doesn't cover, takes away, buries as far or removes as far as the east is from the west, buries it in the deepest sea, remembers them no more. Jesus is only the lion. He's the lamb who was slain for our transgressions, for our sins. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb that was slain points to the cross. Jesus is worthy to bring God's justice to earth because Jesus brought God's mercy to earth. That's why he's worthy. Jesus is the only one that ever died on the cross in our stead, in our place, for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus brought God's mercy to earth in the work of the cross. Therefore, he's the only one who could answer the call of who is worthy to bring God's justice to earth. But this is a peculiar lamb. Read it there in your text. It's a weird lamb, a lamb standing, but as if slain. Well, if it was slain, how's it standing? Well, Christ not only died for our sins, but Christ rose from the dead. He not only paid for our sins on the cross, he rose from the dead that we might have new life and life abundantly and eternal life. And the phrase, a lamb as is as slain points toward the cross, but standing points toward the resurrection. Jesus is a lion who is also the lamb who is slain, but who is risen and now stands in glory at the center of the throne. But look again at the lamb. It's such an abnormal lamb. He has seven horns, it says. I've never seen a lamb with seven horns. Yeah, it's weird. It's book of Revelation symbol stuff. It's weird. He has seven horns. Horns in scripture are always a symbol of authority, power, strength, dominion. And the number seven in scripture is a number of completion. Jesus is the one who has complete strength, authority, power, and dominion. But he's such a weird lamb. He's got seven eyes. I've never seen a lamb with seven eyes. Symbolism that points to a reality. Says there that his eyes are the seven spirits of God that go out through all the earth. The Holy Spirit. Christ is the second member of the Trinity. Possesses and sends the Holy Spirit. He's not only omnipotent, all-powerful, he's omniscient, all-knowing, represented by the eyes and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world. Jesus is being presented now in John's grand vision of heaven as the Almighty. Literally, it says, and when I saw in the middle of the throne in Hebrew, it's in the center of it all, at the center of all of it, all the mess of history that's gone before, the horrors and the joy of God's righteousness and justice and wrath coming to earth, the glory and mystery of heaven, in the middle of it all stands Christ as the key figure of the universe. All of it has to do with Jesus, who is the lion and the lamb, who is slain but is risen and so now stands, who brought God's mercy to earth, and so is the only one who brings God's justice 
judgment and wrath to earth. So in verse 7, we have the culminating act of all of history. It says in verse 7, And he, the Lamb, came, and he took it, the scroll, out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Brothers and sisters, at that moment, all of our corporate resounding and reverberating prayers throughout history of God, thy kingdom come, have been answered. When the glorious lamb who is a lion steps forward and takes the scroll and authority, all of our heartfelt prayers of God, thy kingdom come, are being answered in that moment. The kingdom has come. John has heard of this before in Daniel chapter 7. John was a good Jewish boy. He knew of Daniel the prophet, and he'd read of this scene before. Look at this from Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire, and a river of fire flowing out coming before him. Fire in scripture is always judgment language and symbolism. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. Who is that? Starts with a J. Jesus was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All of the corporate prayers throughout history of God's people of thy kingdom come are being answered in the moment when the king comes to the throne and takes the scroll. Because the kingdom is coming. The righteous reign of Christ on earth is coming, but it cannot come without God's justice coming to earth as well. It's part of that prayer. God, bring your justice to earth. All of God's prayers or all of God's people's cries for justice throughout history are about to be answered. All the wickedness that has seemingly gone unfaced is about to be faced definitively. And the only one able to do it is Jesus. Are you his? Notice what no one's doing at this point in the text. Nobody's shaking their fist at God. Nobody's asking any questions. We always say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this. Shut up. (laughs) No, you're not. There's a throne with overwhelming glory. All the universe is resounding with praise and worship. And there's one in the center who's a lion but a lamb. He's slain but he's standing. It's all answered in that moment. It's Jesus. Are you his? Jesus is the only one who brought God's mercy to earth. He's the only one who can bring God's judgment to earth. Mercy is only a state of justice. In Revelation chapter 5, the day of mercy has closed. The day of justice has come. Verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Who do the 24 elders represent? Remember that from last week? Us, the church, thank you. The 24 elders represent us. You'll notice as we move through the book of Revelation, every time we're pictured in heaven, we're on our faces. That ought to clue us in. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one having a harp. I don't know why we have harps in heaven, but I think it's cool. 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I want you to make special note of that. Golden bowls full of incense, which are your prayers. There's been a lot of times in my life where it's felt like God doesn't hear my prayers. It's been a lot of dark nights where it feels like my prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. It's been a lot of long days where it seems as though God is far off and uncaring. But that isn't true. The text says that there, in the decisive moment of history, before the glorious throne, in the presence of the lion and the lamb are my prayers. And to God, they're like golden bowls full of incense. Incense in God's presence is always symbolic of that which is pleasing to him. Golden bowls are representative of that which is precious to God. He hears the cry of your heart. The psalmist said that every one of your tears, he captures and he saves. I know sometimes it feels as though things are so unjust and God is so far and things are so out of control, but it isn't true. Stop and look at the lion who is the lamb in the middle of the throne and see there your prayers before him. In this moment, all of your prayers are being answered. And there's only one right response, verse nine. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. Why? Why is he worthy again? Because you were slain and you purchased for God, with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He's worthy to unleash God's wrath because he brought God's mercy. And you have made us, them, to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen. But the elders, who does that represent? Fell down and worshiped. There's only one right response to this text. It's to let your life become worship to the only one who is worthy. It's to let your life become worship to the only one who is worthy. For in the end, that's what it's meant to be. When the lion begins to get his way, when the lamb begins to rule, when his righteous reign begins to come and his justice is expressed in our history, the only right spot for the person who loves Jesus is in worship. Certainly that means singing songs. They're singing songs in heaven and you have a little harp. (laughs) But it's so much more than that. To worship is to obey. If this is truly Jesus, if he's a lion and the lamb and the sovereign over all the world, if he's brought us mercy and he'll bring the world justice, then shouldn't he be obeyed? In our relationship, should we not obey him? In our sexuality, should we not obey him? In our finances, should we not honor him? In our forgiveness, 
in the way that we spend and are spent, are spent, should we not obey the lamb who is a lion? Worthy is the lamb. Thank you, Lord, for this picture of you in glory and the way that it helps us to see more clearly. And we ask now that, Holy Spirit, you'd help us just to see our lives in light of this glory, in light of the lion and the lamb, your justice coming, the mercy that you've brought to us. And so, Holy Spirit, speak to us about our lives, about our worship, about the way that we respond to you or don't, the way that we follow you or don't. Thank you for this glorious future reality that is coming when your righteous reign is established on earth and justice is brought. Thank you for it, God. It gives us tremendous hope. But let it also form the way that we live and think and feel and celebrate and mourn. For Jesus, who is like you? Whom have we in heaven but you? So help us to follow you. Thank you that you love us, that you've saved us. If anyone's here, Lord, who has not repented of their sins and put their faith in you and been saved, I pray it would happen now, God. I pray that they would meet you in your extension of mercy long before they would ever meet you in your justice. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the lamb that saved us from the wrath of God. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.